So I have to tell you this, uh, a couple weeks ago, as a church, we had a couple of uh, open forums. And an open forum is, it's not a business meeting, it's just an informal time to get together and talk about something. And so we had one on Saturday and one on Sunday and had a, a great turnout. And we, we simply discussed where we are as a church right now in terms of worship ministry. Talked about the fact that uh, over the last couple of years, we've had an interim person, Phil, who is kind of taking care of things for us. But Phil is needing to move on to some other things. And uh, so even though he and his family are still part of Gateway and he'll lead every now and then. But we just basically said, uh, we're trying to figure out what to do. And we've tried to hire somebody part-time and that hasn't worked out. And, and overwhelmingly, people were at the meeting who said just, well, then we need to do something. We need to find someone full-time or you know, whatever it is to do that. So we've, been, we've kind of been doing that. I've been getting um, job descriptions out and getting resumes uh, for people who might be interested in leading worship here. And so it's been interesting. We have, we have resumes from Brazil, from Argentina, from South Africa, um, <clears throat> let's see, from Mexico, um, yeah, from Canada, eh? and, uh, and others that, like, some people, I'm not even sure they really speak English, but it's been kind of interesting, and then we've had a few uh, from, you know, within the United States, and so I've had a chance, I've made a couple phone calls and talked with a couple of people and uh, about the job, and so they'll ask, you know, about the church, I'll ask them about themselves and their family and their experience, and then inevitably at some point they'll say, well, you know, tell me a little bit about your worship services at Gateway, what kind of songs do you do? So we'll talk about, oh, here's some of the songs that we do, and typically it's like, okay, I, you know, I know the songs, you can do those. Uh, what about teaching? Like, what are you teaching on? And I'll say, oh, well, we're, you know, we're going through the Gospel of Luke right now. Oh, oh, cool, cool. And then every single time, it kind of goes like this. Oh, okay, so if you were to hire somebody by the fall and they came in and, and they were leading worship, like, do you know what you'll be teaching on? I'm like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'll be teaching on. <laughs> we'll be in Luke. Oh, cool. Okay, great. So, like, um, like let's say uh, January, like in January. Like, what will you be doing? Do you know what you'll be doing then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know exactly what I'll be doing. We'll be doing Luke. Oh, well, how long is this going to go? I said, well, I think we'll kind of, I'm hoping we'll be covering the resurrection around Easter. Like, wouldn't that be cool? I'm, I'm hoping. We'll have to press really hard to, to, to make that happen. But I think we might do that. And you can hear them like, oh. You, I can hear the brain turning. I don't know how many songs I know from Luke. Uh, but, you know, they're thinking about it. And then this always comes up. So you've just, so did you just start? <laughs> They're like, no, we've, we've been in it for 20 months and dead silence. Like nobody says anything. It's really quiet for a minute and then we go on. So that's what we're doing. We're in Luke. We've been in Luke for uh, 20 months now and I'm guessing we're going to be in Luke for about 10 more months is, is my guess. And uh, it's good to see that you're still coming. That's encouraging. Now, here's why I tell you this because um, one of the great things about just going through a book like this and taking this long is that once we pull the trigger and we start the book, I really have no control over the topics that we cover and the weekends that we cover them on. And I say that because the topic we're going to cover this weekend is a little awkward for Father's Day. It's a little awkward, as you'll see, if you look at the passage. <clears throat> so I thought about it, and I thought, well, it's such an awkward passage, and I did not plan this, I promise. Um, in fact, I tried to find a way out of it, but in the end, I'm like, we just got to stick with it. So I thought I'd tell you an awkward story that might be more awkward than the sermon, and then, 
But it kind of goes along with the sermon. So you probably heard the story. It's been around. Every pastor but me has probably told the story. It's a story about a husband and wife, and they've been married for many, many years. And uh, they've, their kids have grown up, and you know they've lived a blessed life. And one day they're sitting there at the uh, dinner table, and um, the wife says to the husband, she says, honey, you know, I'm just really concerned. If, if I should pass away before you, I really think that you should get remarried. I think you should. I, and, you know, the husband's like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that we should be talking about this. She's like, no, I think we need to talk about it, and I think you need to agree that you'll get remarried. You're kind of hapless. I don't think you can survive on your own, so I think you need to get married. And the husband says, well, all right, if you really think I should. And then it's quiet for a minute. She says, so if you get remarried, would you live in this house? And he thinks about it for a minute, and he's like, well, yeah, I suppose it's a nice house, and I mean, I don't know what her house is like, but this is a nice house, and so I'd probably, probably, we'd probably live here. And it's quiet for a minute, and she says, well, will she drive my car and wear my jewelry? And he thinks, and he says, well, I, you know, I don't know, I mean, you have a nice car, it's brand new, and you know, it's convertible, and she, she'll probably want to drive it, and you know, I don't know about her jewelry, it's all about taste, I I don't really know. I, it's quiet for a minute, and then she says, do you think she'll use my golf clubs? And he says, well, of course not, honey. She's left-handed. So, again, <coughs> awkward, and now for an awkward sermon. <laughs> Shan's laughing, so I know I'm okay. I'm good to go. So last week, Pastor Bill, <laughs> okay, if, and if you find that story offensive, please email me. My email address is bill at gatewayweb.org. I say that every time. It's like, never fails to get a laugh. Okay, uh, so last week, in fact, Pastor Bill was teaching, and uh, we were looking at Jesus teaching on, on money. And the basic point was this. Jesus was saying, you know, you can worship money, uh, you can serve money, or you can worship God and serve God, but you cannot do both of them simultaneously. You can't do that. Now today we're going to kind of continue on that discussion. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about point one is the law and the gospel. And this is kind of the big theme about what we're going to talk. I say this, like look at that, the law and the gospel. I say it because partway through the sermon, you're not going to remember what the sermon is about. <laughs> we're going to go sideways. But we are going to talk about the law and the gospel. And, and here's the connection in verse 14 as we carry on the story. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, that is, these things that Jesus was saying about money. And it says they, they ridiculed him. They, they mocked him. They, they laughed at him. Now, when they heard what Jesus had to say about money, they ridiculed him. And the reason why is, it tells us, because they loved money. And maybe you've noticed this, but I, I've noticed people will do this. Like, they'll take parts of the Bible they like, and they'll, you know, say, oh, that's great. That's wonderful teaching. But when people hear things in the Bible they don't like, and by the way, we're going to hear some things over the next few weeks that a lot of people, most people, don't like. But we have this habit of doing this. What we like, we applaud, and what we don't like, we, we can ridicule. And I've seen people do this with what the Bible has to say about money. They'll say, oh, you know what the Bible has to say about money is, is ridiculous, and they'll ridicule it. If I did what the Bible said, if I was generous, I, I, I'd end up with nothing. Today, people will read what the Bible says about sexuality, and they'll ridicule it, right? They'll, they'll, they'll attack it. We're, we're seeing that. People will read what the Bible says about forgiving. This is a, so this is a big one within the church. Like I find when I preach about different topics, the topic of forgiveness is the one that gets more pushback than any other topic that I preach about in church, any. 
Because inevitably, when I talk about forgiving, like forgiving as we've been forgiven, I always get emails and conversations from people who say, I agree in principle, except in my case, if you knew what so-and-so did to me or what they said about me or whatever, you would understand why I don't have to do this. And they ridicule this. Or it could be what the Bible says about sin or, or, or serving or humility. And people say, you know, if I did what the Bible said about humility, it, it wouldn't work for me. It, people would walk all over me. I'd never get, you know, recognition. I'd never get a raise, any of that stuff. Well, this is the Pharisees. They mock, they ridicule what Jesus has to say about money. Now, when it came to money, the Pharisees kind of fell into this, this thinking. And that was this. If you're rich, if you're successful, that's proof that God is pleased with you that God likes you, that God accepts you. And I, I say that because even today we can, we can kind of fall into that way of thinking at times. We can think, you know, that we see people who are doing well, who are rich, who are successful, and it's easy sometimes to think, well, well, God must be pleased with them. God must love them, just like the Pharisees thought back then. But of course, when we say that about a rich, successful drug dealer, you know, watch you, where we go, well, look, I mean, business is booming, it's growing, you know, God must love them or approve of them, or maybe somebody who's into uh, sex trafficking or into theft identity. But even in the church, I've noticed sometimes, we can kind of lift up people who seem successful and, and kind of worship them. Like, I see this sometimes with church leaders. Well, their church is really big, so God must love them. God must be happy with their ministry. Or, you know, they have a lot of money. They have a big budget. A couple years ago, I had a, a guy come to me who had moved out of the area. And he said, oh, we started going to this church and it's so cool. The pastor is this amazing guy and he has a yacht. He has a yacht. And the guy told me, he's like, isn't that cool? And I was, you know, I, I didn't say it, but I thought, no, actually, that's alarming. <laughs> that, that's worrisome. And sure enough, about a year later, his pastor's name was in the uh, news and he had been stealing from the church. But it's, sometimes it's easy to see. Like, we just see these outward things. Like, well, they look successful. Well, they're rich. Well, look at, they have a head full of hair. God must love them, right? Everything must be great with them. So Jesus says to them in verse 15, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Now, you have to understand, the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus, they're mocking him, and now Jesus comes back with some very, these are very strong, very, very loaded words. You are those who justify yourselves before people, but, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, people might admire you. It's not that hard to fool people. And they might admire you based on your appearance or your success or your title or your education or your wealth or the friends you hang out with. But the big question is, what does God think of you? Because God doesn't care about this. God cares about the heart. God knows your heart. God knows your thoughts and your motives and your intentions. So Jesus talks about this word justify, and if you're taking notes, you might circle that word because it's a very, very, very important word in Christianity. In fact, this word justify uh, was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. You may have heard of that back in the 1500s, and this word basically means to render something as innocent or as right, and spiritually we were referring to God. So to, so to be justified is to have something be rendered innocent or right before God. Now God, on the one hand, is holy and good and, and without sin, 
We, on the other hand, are, are unholy. We, we are sinners. We sin in action and in words and in thoughts. We, we commit what are called uh, sins of commission. That is where we do things that we shouldn't do. And sins of omission, where we don't do the good things that God has told us to do. And our sin, the Bible says, has separated us from a holy, perfect God. It, it, it was our choice. We chose to have this chasm put between us and God. And the debate during the Reformation was this. How is someone justified in God's sight? In other words, if we've been separated from God, how can we come back to God? How, how can that bridge be gapped? How can we be justified? Now, religion in general will tell us this, that we are justified by self-righteousness. And what that means is that, that on our own, we will perform maybe certain rituals, or, and for each religion, it's different, but certain rituals check off certain boxes, right? Do, do the right things. And if we do those right things, if we do more good stuff than bad stuff, then we'll be will be made self-righteous. But the Bible teaches this, we are justified by faith. Or another way to put it is, we are justified by Jesus' righteousness, by his perfection. In verse 16, he goes on and he says this, now the law and the prophets were until John, he's talking about John the Baptist. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now there is, a, there is a whole lot of stuff in these two verses. And we'll try to unpack this quick. Now the John that he's talking about is John the baptizer. And if you've been here for the last 20 months, we've talked a lot about John. And John is an interesting character in redemptive history. In fact, singular, singularly, um, Interesting because he was the last Old Testament prophet. Uh, he was the, the, the last prophet to come on the scene and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. But John was also the first New Testament prophet because he was the one who saw the Messiah come and begin his ministry. So John becomes, if you will, this, this bridge between the Old and the New Testament. Now Jesus talks about the Old Testament, about the law and the prophets that were until John. So the law that he's talking about here is the, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible we call the Pentateuch, written mostly by Moses. And it's been said by scholars that there are 613 commands in the Pentateuch. 613, do this, don't do this, say this, don't say that, don't go there, don't eat that, that kind of stuff. So what Jesus says is the, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and basically the prophets just came along and preached the law. And then he says, and then came John. And since John, he says the good news, and that's where we get the word gospel from. The, the good news is being preached. Now, when we talk about the law and the gospels, we can think of it this way, that the law is that which reveals our unrighteousness. And some people will say that in a New Testament time, the law has no purpose. But in fact, the law has the same purpose today that it always had. It's because the law was never, ever a way for us to be right with God, ever. It was, and some people say, well, in the Old Testament you were saved by keeping the law, in the New Testament you're saved by grace. That's not what the Bible teaches. We've always been saved by grace. But the purpose of the law was to reveal our unrighteousness, and the gospel reveals Jesus as the righteousness that we need. And then he goes on and he says this, and people, I love this, are forcing their way into the kingdom of God. So, as the gospel's being preached, right, so remember, up to this point, it's the Old Testament, it's the law, it's the prophets, and, and 
the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're making a relationship with God all about the law. Keep this, keep this, don't do this, don't do this, don't say that, don't go there, give this. And they've made the law this unbelievable, instead of a standard to measure up against and find out we don't measure up, they made it a list of rules that people were supposed to keep. And it was this unbelievable burden that weighed people down. Now Jesus comes along and he says, no one's saved by the law, you're saved by grace. And it's like the floodgates of, of the kingdom of God are being opened. And, and common people are like rushing to get into this narrow gate except for the Pharisees. Because they thought they were already in. And Jesus talks here about one, one dot of the law. He says, is it, it is easier for, one, uh, for heaven and earth to pass than for one dot, or some of your translations will say one stroke of a letter of the law to become void. You can think of a stroke of a letter in the law as this. It'd be like in the English language, the difference between a capital F and just one stroke that turns it into an E. And what Jesus says is, heaven and earth would pass away before there even one stroke of the law would be done away with. So here's the point. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The law has a purpose. I don't know if you've ever been reading your Bible, and, and you're reading it, and then as you're reading it, you become aware of some sin in your life. Has that ever happened to you? You're reading it, and then you read like where it says, you know, love your enemies, and you think, oh, oops, <laughs> I don't love my enemies very well. You ever done that? It felt like, oh, man, I feel bad. And, and sometimes people tell me, I, think the, I don't think the Bible really works for me. And I'll say, what do you mean? And they'll say, well, I, every time I read it, I feel guilty, right? Like I read it, and I'm like, love your enemies, and I don't love my enemies, or help those in need, and I don't really help people. I don't do that, or forgive as you've been forgiven. And I, and I read my Bible, and I actually feel guiltier than before I read it, to which I'll usually reply, oh, no, it's working perfectly. <laughs> That's part of, what, part of what the Bible does, part of it. See, the law reveals the bad news. The bad news is we are sinners, we deserve judgment, but the good news is that Jesus came and kept all of the laws of God. And he went to the cross and he paid for our sin. And now he offers to you his righteousness. That's the gospel. Now the problem for the Pharisees, in its essence is this, that they were, that they were hypocrites. And we've seen this many times before. But this is the problem here. The problem is hypocrisy. And, and we all have a little bit of hypocrisy in us. Like, have you ever noticed that it's easier to see the sins of others than it is to see your own sin? Like, if you're married, or if you have kids, or if you live with your parents, have you ever noticed it's, that it's kind of easier for you to notice their sin than it is for them to notice their sin? I, I mean, do you have people in your life and you've ever wondered, like, how can they not see how, how mean they are, or bitter they are, or you know, hypocritical they are. But, but this is, what, see, we're all hypocrites. We all have rules and preferences that we judge others by, but we don't even live up to those ourselves. And, and that's really the point. See, the Pharisees are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. They, they don't see their need for a Savior because they think that they are completely justified before God. So what do you do with somebody who needs to be saved, who needs to be forgiven, but they don't, they don't get it? They don't understand it. They can't see it. Have you ever dealt with someone like that? Like, I don't need a Savior. That's the Pharisees. So Jesus is gonna, he's gonna help them. He's gonna illustrate this for them. And the illustration is uh, divorce, all right? 
Happy Father's Day. Glad you came today, right? Like I said, it's going to be awkward, all right? So here's, here's the example. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife. So some people read this and go, wait a minute, wait. There's just one verse on divorce. Where in the world did this come from? This is, Jesus is not going to teach comprehensively on divorce. It's just an example of their hypocrisy. Everyone who divorces his wife, and by everyone, he's talking about the Pharisees. He's looking right at them. And marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, apparently, from, from what we understand, with the things Jesus says, and some of the things we understand about uh, at this period of history, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, in fact, were men who often desired other women who were not their wives. But because they were so holy and self-righteous and not wanting to actually just go commit adultery, because that would be terrible, what these men would do is they, would, they, they, they looked for a loophole in the Bible, which would justify them divorcing their wives and then being free to marry another woman. Right? And this is the way that they justified it. They would say, oh, I'm not an adulterer. I don't just go around and sleep with other women. No, no, no. First I divorce the woman I'm married to, and then I go have a relationship with the other woman. And they, they had completely justified this. Now, the way they did it was, they took uh, Deuteronomy 24, which we're not going to get into today because there's so much there. You can look at that later. But they, they took Deuteronomy 24 and some instructions from God that were meant, that were meant to discourage people from divorce, and they twisted it, and they turned it into justification. In fact, they had a list, and, and basically what they said was this. Deuteronomy 24 says that if a husband is offended by certain things that his wife does, that he is free to divorce her. And they had all sorts of things. on. They had an official list. Here's some of the things on the list. If she was a bad cook, that was justification for divorce. If she, I love this one. If she was disrespectful to her mother-in-law, <laughs> that was grounds for divorce. If she failed to birth a son, that was grounds for divorce. If, and this is, if she was less beautiful or found less beautiful than another woman, like that never happened, right? Those were grounds for divorce. Here's Jesus' point, okay? You have to understand the Pharisees are looking at Jesus, mocking what he's saying about money. And he turns around and looks at them and he says, do you understand that you men are the worst kind of hypocrites who have taken the Bible and, and twisted it and, and divorced your wives to satisfy your lust and your sin. And you stand there all self-justified like you're just fine with God. But you are not fine with God. This is the point of what he's getting at. The, the interesting thing is, how many times so far in the Gospel of Luke have the religious leaders condemned Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath, which wasn't even against the law, but they condemned him for doing good? And they stand and condemn Jesus for what he has to say. And Jesus looks at them and he says, what about your sin? What about these terrible things you do? So Jesus gives them a, an example, and the example is divorce. Now, it's just one verse. It's just supposed to be an illustration or, or an example of their hypocritical sin. It's not meant to be comprehensive, and it's not. And yet, I find that whenever we come to this passage, it raises a lot of questions. 
Because a lot of times when we get to this and we start talking about divorce, you know, people are like, well, wait a minute. So, you know, what, so how does this all work and what does the Bible have to say? So we're going we're gonna to do this. This right here is a sign, okay, that we're going to, have you ever done this? We're going to go down a rabbit trail, right? So were you ever like in high school or in college? And you did, when I was in college, it was art. We'd always try to get our professors on rabbit trails because usually we wouldn't get tested on that. But we're going we're gonna to go off. We're going to kind of go sideways for a minute because I, I think we need to talk about this just a little bit because divorce and remarriage raises a lot of questions. And unfortunately, a lot of times Christians are very, we're very lazy about this. And we'll turn what the Bible has to say about divorce into, into like a math equation. You ever seen this? And people just be like, well, this plus this plus this minus this equals yes, you can get divorced or no, you can't get divorced. But this is not a math equation. Or sometimes they'll make it a checklist. Like it's a, it's a you know, a clipboard and a, you know, check, check, no check, check. And then, okay, you can get divorced or, or, or you can't. Math is easy. Life is complicated. In life, there are many variables. And maybe for some of you, you've experienced divorce firsthand. And so you could, you could talk about how complicated, how painful, how difficult it is. Maybe for some of you, it was your, your grandparents. Maybe it was your, your parents. Maybe it's an extended family member. Maybe it's one of your kids. But you, you know, it's, it's complicated. Uh, there are always two sides. This reminds me, one of the things that really taught me about this was when I first got into ministry and I was a youth pastor and um, this, as, as sometimes would happen, a family would join a church. Well, there was a, a young college-age woman who joined our church and she went through membership and then she said, you know, I'd love to be involved in youth ministry and so we kind of interviewed her and checked references and, you know, she became part of the youth staff and shortly after she became part of my youth staff, um, I got a call from somebody uh, on the other side of the country and this person said, uh, you, know, you don't know me, but this woman who has joined your youth staff, uh, she, I was married to her. And she divorced me, and she moved away. And you just, you need to know that. You need to deal with her, and you need to tell her to return. So, got off the phone, and you now I was like flabbergasted. She didn't, she didn't tell me she was divorced. I, I didn't know any of this, so I was, you know, kind of prayed, and I, I got my, you know, my Bible canon ready to go, and I was just getting ready to call her and lower the boom, and she called me and said, hey, I, I, I need to come in, and we need to talk, and if it's okay, I'm going to bring a couple people with me. So I was like, yeah, you know, bring it on. Let's, you know. So anyway, she shows up a few days later, and she shows up with, a, with a, her parents, which I wasn't expecting, that came in, and we had a talk, and she basically said, you know, you, you probably don't know this about me, but uh, I, I used to be married, and I'm divorced, and I haven't really talked about this, um, and then she told me her story. She said, you know, the guy that I married, uh, we grew up in church together. Our, our families, our parents were best friends. And you know, we dated through high school, through college. Um, the night that we got married, um, you know, on our honeymoon, the very first night, um, he basically beat me with his fist. And then he continued to do that every night for several years. And she described for me how sometimes she would hide in a little closet underneath the stairway in their house. And I asked her, you know what, well, why, why didn't you tell someone? And so she told me about how there was just connections between her family and, and, the, and the church and the other family. And she knew that if she ever told anyone what was going on, it would really complicate things. And in fact, when she finally did tell her parents what was going on, 
and they decided they, the, the situation was so volatile, they decided that you know, the only way out was she, she had to get out of the marriage and move to another part of the country. And in fact, it re- her dad lost his job. There's a lot of complications involved in this. And again, you know, one of the things that taught me is that this is not math. This is people. And it can get really messy sometimes. So when we talk about divorce, as Jesus talks about divorce, what are the biblical grounds? What does the Bible have to say? So really quickly, let's go through this. And in your, in your notes, you'll notice I'm referring to it as a dissolution of marriage because I want to talk a little bit broader than that. First of all, there's, there's death of a spouse. Now I mention this because it's important. In Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, it says this, that marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman that's intended to last a lifetime. But when a spouse dies... The Bible says that the marriage covenant ends and, and the widow or the widower is then biblically free to remarry if they desire to do so. And in, in our church, we've seen some people who have lost their spouse and then God has, has blessed them with, with another spouse and, and they rejoiced in that and have enjoyed that and we've, we've rejoiced with them. And so sometimes this is the case. Uh, here's the second thing though and it's what we're kind of talking about today. There's, there's the case of adultery in Matthew 5 and in Deuteronomy 24. And the Bible says that divorce is allowed in the case of adultery. If, if, if somebody in the marriage commits adultery against the other person, um, what the Bible says is that part of the marriage covenant is that a man and a woman become one flesh. And when adultery happens, when one of those people goes out and has a sexual relationship with, with someone else, that the, the vows are broken and, and the oneness is broken. And in that case, the Bible says that divorce is allowed. But this is very important. While divorce is allowed, it is not demanded. It's not even required. But it is allowed. Sometimes I've seen people who decide, we're not going to divorce, we're going to get counseling and seek help, which is a noble decision. But it requires two important things. The adulterer must repent, and the spouse who sinned against must be willing to forgive. Those two things are not always in the mix. And it's hard work. But I've seen it done, and, and, and it's an amazing thing. In fact, I have to tell you, after church last night, I had several conversations with people who came up to me afterwards and said, very privately, he said, you know, nobody really knows this, but, you know, my, you know, either I or my spouse committed adultery, and we haven't told anybody, but we got counseling and worked through it, and we're still together today. And as he shared those stories, again, it just showed me that God can do wonderful, amazing things. But the Bible does say that in the case of adultery, if necessary, that divorce is allowed. Now, there's a third category, and that is sexual immorality. And we see this in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. Um, in those passages, Jesus talks about something that your, your Bible probably calls sexual immorality. And the Greek word there is the word pornea, which may sound familiar to you. We get the word pornography from it. But it's a general term for the various kinds of sexual immorality. It, it includes adultery, but it's even broader than that. It can refer to things that are not technically adultery, but qualify as infidelity. Now, this is the point at which some people start to go, well, this sounds fuzzy and and not as solid as I'd like it to be and not math, to which I'd have to say, well, agree. Now, scholars list all sorts of different things under um, pornea. Um, You'll find people today who will say, well, it includes um, an addiction to pornography. Studies can continue to find that uh, when someone in marriage is addicted to pornography, it can 
just literally infect that marriage and destroy that marriage. So some people will put that in the list, that that, that qualifies as grounds for divorce. Some people will include things like uh, if, so, if someone has an emotional affair, and maybe you've, you're familiar with that concept, right? maybe somebody in the marriage works, at, maybe at work, you'll hear this sometimes, they begin to develop an emotional relationship with someone, not physical, but um, emotional, that reflects the relationship that you ought to have with your mate. And so some people will, will include that here because it's a breaking, if you will, of the oneness in the marriage. Today we also, there's some things included in this list that um, could not have even been imagined back in Jesus' time, like people who have online affairs where they actually never meet with the person, but they're kind of having an affair online. I don't, don't even want to get into that. Um, or sexual perversions that are not technically adultery. Now again, there's some disagreement over what's in this list. And you don't have to divorce if, if this happens. But there may be grounds for divorce. It, but it's complicated. It's complicated. And I'll say this several times here. If you find yourself in a situation like this and you're wondering, is this, is this grounds for divorce and you're trying to figure out what to do, this is where you need spiritual leadership. You, you need to invite someone to come in uh, who can be biblical and prayerful and loving and encourage you. And then there's a, a fourth thing in your notes here, and that is uh, when a non-Christian wants out of a marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, now it, it may be that uh, a Christian marries a non-Christian, which is very much ill-advised and unbiblical, but it happens sometimes. And I've seen this happen where at some point the non-Christian says, you know, I didn't know you were like this much of a Jesus freak and I can't take this anymore and I just went out. And Paul says when that happens, then, you know, and of course you understand we live in a no-fault society. So if someone wants to, if your mate wants to divorce you, they're in, in our society today, you can't stop them. And if you find yourself in that situation, Jesus says, well, they're, they're free to go. They're free to go. Or it may be that you have two non-Christians who marry and one becomes a Christian and, and the, unbeliever, the unbeliever's like, you know, I, again, I didn't sign up for this and I went out. Now, this is an awkward and difficult discussion to have as, as a church in a sermon. Uh, but again, I didn't bring it up. Jesus did, okay? So, and then people say like, but what about, what about physical abuse? Yeah, right? And, and what about emotional abuse, which can be an awful thing? And what about spiritual abuse? And what I would say is this, that the, the challenge is that somewhere between uh, kind of a legalistic view that says there's no divorce allowed ever and kind of the permissive, no-fault divorce view that you find in our world today, somewhere in the middle is a, is a biblical wisdom and, and a discernment. But again, relationships are, are, are messy and it's not math. And this is why we tell you all the time, this is why you need to know the Bible Right? There's no shortcut. You need to know the Bible. And, and you need to know the people involved. And you need to get the facts. And you need to seek God. You need to seek his word. You need to seek him in prayer. And, and let me just say this. That if, if it's your marriage and you find yourself in a situation like this, chances are you're not very objective. Which is why you need to seek out wise and biblical counsel. People who love you and care about you know the word of God, will pray over this, people who you allow to speak into your life. So Jesus talks about marriage. He also talks about remarriage in verse 18. Notice what he says. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman uh, divorced from her husband also commits adultery. So people read this and say, wait, so 
What's up with that? Very quickly, you can think of it this way. If you have a man and woman, and they become married, and, and they divorce on biblical grounds, then uh, the person who was sinned against is free to remarry. Now, for the person who sinned, that's a different thing altogether that we're not talking about right now, but the, the person who was sinned against is free to remarry. On the other hand, if you have a couple, man and woman, they're married, and they get divorced, but it was not on biblical grounds, then what the Bible basically says is, in God's eyes, they're still married. Now, in the state of Washington, they may not be married, but in the eyes of God, they're still married. And so what happens is, if they get an unbiblical divorce, they're still married in God's eyes, one of them goes out and gets remarried, and now they're having a physical relationship with their new legal spouse. God says, not legal in my eyes, and it's like committing adultery. And so that's the, the picture. And his point with the Pharisees is, that's what you're doing. And you think that you've justified yourselves by getting an unbiblical divorce, by, by divorcing your wife because she you know, burnt the toast or some other ridiculous thing, instead of loving her and, and sacrificing for her and forgiving her, you just used her, you just abused her, and then you moved on and you get another marriage. And Jesus says, that's terrible. God hates that. And yet you stand here thinking that you're okay. On the other hand, remarriage is allowed when you're... If your spouse dies or if you're the victim of marital infidelity or an unbeliever divorces you. However, see, the Pharisees are not interested in any of this stuff. They don't care about any of this. So you might be sitting here this morning going, ooh, well, you know, and this, maybe you're wrestling, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're like, ooh, this is, this is tough stuff. See, it wasn't for the Pharisees. They didn't care. That's the point. It, they didn't care. They just wanted what they wanted. And they're willing to twist the Bible and use the Bible to get to justify whatever it is that they wanted. Let me mention this. We're going to just really quick, one more time, okay? I have to say this because I don't want to leave you hanging here. That, I just want to mention this. Came across a book by a guy named Bradford Wilcox. He's from the University of Virginia. And he did a massive study, one of the biggest of its kind, on marriages, on Christian marriages. He wrote a book called Soft Patriarchs, New Men. And he, there's some findings in his book, in fact, three things that he says uh, can drop the divorce rate by half in a Christian marriage. It's not a guarantee, but he found in general it, it drops the divorce rate by half. Three things quickly because you might want to know these. First is this, regular church attendance together. A husband and wife who attend the same church service, they sit together, they get the same teaching, they're involved in the same spiritual community, accountability, encouragement, this would be involved, also being in a grow group together, uh, not just checking off a box, but doing spiritual community together. The second thing is a shared theology, where you agree on Jesus, you talk about it, you work it through, you agree in the Bible, you agree on, on marriage, like, so my wife and I, Christy and I, uh, we, are, we are very, very different people. Um, we, are, we make decisions in very different ways. Like she likes to just make a decision. I figure if it doesn't involve at least three months of research on the internet, you didn't do, uh, you know, it wasn't a good decision. We like different TV shows. I don't like chick flicks. She likes them a lot. Um, we like different foods. Uh, I don't like, uh, I don't, I don't want to eat fungus. I don't want to eat mushrooms. I don't want to eat sour cream. Cream that's sour doesn't make any sense to me. She loves those foods. Uh, you know, we, we're, our ideas about raising kids uh, are often very different. Uh, we problem solve different. Uh, I'm, I'm direct and she's kind. So we're, we're just very different in that way. But, but we agree. We, my daughter's just laughing back there. But, we agree. We, but I'll tell you this, we agree on Jesus 
Absolutely. We agree in the Bible. We agree on the gospel and building a marriage around Jesus. Shared theology. Number three, you got to bring your faith home. All right? You read, read the Bible in your home. Read the Bible. Talk about it. Discuss the gospel. Be in a grow group together. Uh, pray together. And what its research found is that if you do these things, your odds of divorce decrease by 50%. It's not some kind of magical thing, but you can see how this could help. So, let's return and wrap this up then, okay? Uh, the gospel applied. So, so here's the point. If, if you were thinking, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, wow, <laughs> right? Like, okay, so I've blown it in my marriage. Had a lot of discussions last night with people afterwards. It felt like this. So I've, blo- I've blown it in my marriage. Like, maybe you're divorced and you're feeling a little bit, you know, hard about it. It's, it's guilty, struggling with that this morning. Or maybe it wasn't your fault, but you feel like, you know, you're partly to blame. Or maybe you're just sitting here this morning going, you know, I'm not divorced, but I haven't been very faithful to my spouse. Maybe you've been involved in some kind of infidelity that they know about or that they don't know about. Maybe you feel like you've been selfish. You've been lazy. You've been unloving. Maybe you're just sitting here this morning going, I haven't been the, the, the best mate, the mate that I ought to be. Here's the point, all right? If, if that's how you feel, then congratulations because you got the point that the Pharisees missed. See, the Pharisees sat there and said, I, I got no issues. I got no problems. I'm doing things legal. No, I'm first time finding a good excuse. And she birthed the lasagna and then, and then I got a divorce and then I married the woman, right? And they're just sitting there. They feel no guilt. They feel no struggle. They don't, they don't see that they're sinners. But if you're here this morning going, oh, I kind of you know, get it. I kind of get that I'm a sinner. Then yes, then you get the point. The point is this. We are all sinners. Yes, in various ways, none of us keep God's law perfectly and marriage is just one example of thousands that Jesus could have picked. And this is what the gospel is all about. This is it, right here. Here's the point. See, the, the, the law judges us by our sin. That's what the law does. It judges us. You might think, ah, well, I don't like the law very much. But it tells us about God and his perfection. And it tells us about our issues. But Jesus justifies us by his cross. That's, well, so that's the gospel. So that's the point. So if you fit, sit here this morning and go, I, so I'm not perfect, so I'm a sinner, Jesus would go, that's great. Then you, you're getting the law. But here's the best part. It's really not about the law anymore, is it? It's about, it's about grace. It's about what Jesus did for us. He became our righteousness for us. In Romans 5, 1, it tells us, this, therefore, since we have been justified, justified by what? By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of being in conflict with God like the Pharisees, instead of resisting God, instead of somehow thinking that we are perfect and deserving of God, instead what it says is we trust in Him. That's faith. That's what connects us to being right with God. The the sequence here is this. We trust in Christ and what He did, not in what we've done. We, We confess that we are sinners That's part of what Jesus is trying to get them to do. We confess that we're sinners. We embrace the cross and what Jesus did for us. We walk in new life. We can walk with our heads held high. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And now we walk in new life. And we walk in the forgiveness of God. And the great thing is, we can now walk in the peace of God. So the end result of the gospel is, if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling convicted about your sin, that's good, but don't stop there. 
Then embrace the forgiveness that God has given you and enjoy that. That's the end result. The grace of God, the peace of God, the love of God that comes to us through Christ Jesus our Lord and through the cross. And that's the gospel. The law informs us of our sin, but the gospel tells us how we become right with God through what Jesus has done for us. So as believers, we walk in two worlds, right? Right? We, we remember who we were apart from Christ, but we celebrate and enjoy who we are and what Jesus has done for us. And my, my prayer for you as we go from here today is that you will be able to both embrace the fact that apart from God, you were a sinner, but now in Christ, you are a, a child of God and you are, you are justified. You stand right before God. And like Paul says, you can live in the peace and the joy. So don't miss that this week. Enjoy the peace of God and the joy of God and the blessings of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.